this is Toxinphilia to Me, or Toxinophilia to Me, and in this episode, I want to hopefully get the 1940s film career of child actress Betty Brewer straightened out. I'm personally interested because she happens to be a relative, not a close relation. On my father's mother's side, my great-grandmother was a sibling of Betty's grandfather, so I'm a second cousin once removed. But her line of family resided in the same area as my father's mother, so they were also close geographically. I'm interested, too, because I've finally been able to see a couple of Betty's films, and she was really good. Her younger sister Eileen and a younger brother Monty also entered movies at the same time, so I'll be talking about them as well. So my interest in this is rather personal, and I thought I'd go into this just a little more. I don't know what Betty's family line was like, I can't begin to guess, but I'm always surprised when I come across someone in the family who was a musician or a painter or a writer, for this is rare. Whatever the history of the different sides of my family, and it's varied, when it was all boiled down together, what materialized in the people I knew was almost a decided rejection of the arts. The arts belonged to a superfluous side of society. No matter the education level in my family, they didn't read literature, they didn't appreciate museums or art, they didn't appreciate film except as something a teenager might frivolously waste time watching, no matter that they watched a lot of television. Most even didn't care about music. The last thing in the world you should do was go into the arts or even aspire to them. I think part of it was that you shouldn't really generate feelings. You shouldn't write feelings. You shouldn't play feelings in music. You shouldn't act feelings. If you did these things, you weren't trusted, nor should you expose any personal ideas to the world. What could make you possibly imagine you belonged in print or on stage? Get a real job. In my family, an individual who aspired to any of the arts would have received no support whatsoever, certainly not emotional, from the several generations with whom I was marginally acquainted. The arts belonged to dreamers, the realm of the immaterial. Artists and their lifestyles weren't status quo. If you became the rare artist or entertainer who made a lot of money, then you might be acceptable, to a point, but you'd still be risky and an outsider. Artists were kind of treated like bombs. Diffuse them so they don't work or keep them far away from you. The arts involved making physical the imagination, and imagination was dangerous, as was personal experience. Keep your personal experience private. I believe there was always the fear of what artistic expression might reveal that could reflect ill on the family. I've no idea how Betty's extended family responded to their going into music than film. But my family was close enough, some of them living near Betty's close relations, that they would have known about Betty and her family. And for some reason, I never heard about her or her siblings until someone made a connection with me through the internet some years ago. Now, back to Betty. On IMDb, Betty's bio used to be entangled with another Betty Brewer. Born in 1922 in Hot Springs, Arkansas, she was a jazz singer with Tommy Dorsey. That other Betty Brewer also appeared in a film, Las Vegas Nights, in 1941 and was on The Bill Cullen Show. I find that on certain points, the two bios of these Bettys are still entangled and incorrect, as with on My Betty's Wikipedia page. 
My Betty Brewer was born in Joplin, Missouri, and was six years of age in the 1930 census. SSDI gives her birth date as being in January of 1927, and the first I see of that birth date actually is in a Hollywood press release. So this is the source of that birth date. All the way back in 1940, someone had decided Betty would have a couple of years shaved off her age, and the same with her sister, Eileen, who had also two years shaved off her age. Betty thus entered Hollywood movies at the age of 13, and Eileen at 11, when they were actually 15 and 13. Those years have also been shaved off in the 1940 census. Monty, their brother, is given as having been born in May of 1932, but I think a couple of years were shaved off his age as well, as they had another younger brother, Elmer, who was born in October of 1932 and died in 1934, before their entry into the entertainment industry. Elmer could not have been born a mere five months after Monty. Monty is seven in the 1940 census. I imagine that if two years were taken off his older siblings, it's likely he was instead nine instead of seven. I've seen Elmer's 1934 death certificate, and it confirms his birth was in October of 1932. He died of pneumonia. Another sibling died at the age of one month in 1925 of pneumonia. One of the big selling points for Betty's start in films, the PR, was that she came from hard scrabble circumstances and was supporting her family. I read at least one commentary from 1940 seeming to question if her story was as difficult as told, but it was tough. Her dad, a veteran, was a lead miner. On her mother's side, Betty's grandfather died in 1915 of miner's consumption at the ripe old age of 30. A brother of his died the year after at about 40 years of age. I don't know if he was a miner. I don't know the cause of his death. But these are obviously people who were living in a lead mining community, and I'm going to assume he was probably a miner. Betty's grandmother remarried to another lead miner. And then, of course, Betty's father was a lead miner. He didn't always work as a lead miner, however. The 1930 census shows them in Lamar Prowers, Colorado, where he was a steel man working on the state bridge. They were renting a place for $13. That was $5 below the national average. In 1940, they were living in Los Angeles and had moved up in the world, renting a place for $30, $3 above the national average. Bill Caldwell of the Joplin Globe did a nice, helpful write-up on Betty in 2018, and he has the information that Betty's father, Albert, was a lead miner for 20 years. He states that with a 1935 miners' strike, they picked up and moved to California, but that's a little early, as the census gives them as living in Joplin in 1935. And Betty, in 1937, at the ripe old reality age of 13, had her own daily Monday through Friday 15-minute radio show on WMBH Radio out of Joplin. Betty and Eileen were little blues singers who had risen up through singing gospel and blues at churches and contests. It's in 1937 also that we find them in Sacramento, hired by KFBK Radio, so they had made the move perhaps in that year. The first picture I ever saw of Betty and Eileen, the first I ever heard of them, a close relative of hers contacted me some years ago and sent this a scan of a ragged newspaper photo from 1937. In it, we see the two girls standing side by side, singing before a microphone. The copy reads, KFBK stars are among the long list of entertainment features scheduled to be presented at the President's Birthday Ball, which will open at 8 o'clock tonight in the Memorial Auditorium. The Brewer
newer sisters, Betty Left and Eileen Wright, shown in the upper photo, will present several of their blues songs. Except for Betty's face being held together with tape, it's a really cute image of the two, with Eileen's arm draped around the neck of her sister. Betty, at 13, was a little shorter than her 11-year-old sister Eileen. Thus, Eileen's easy and very casual draping of her arm around Betty's neck. If one can feel a sense of adoration in a photo, it's perhaps in this one, the way Eileen has her arm around Betty. It's so intimate, it's endearing. Perhaps I'm imagining things, but one can feel how much Eileen might have looked up to Betty. There's a significant trust, it seems. Could they sing? Yes, they could sing. I've heard them singing on film now and read an article speaking of how gifted Betty was. The story is they got out to California, and the dad, working now in carpentry, had difficulty finding work. In 1940, describing their leaving for the land of milk and honey, Betty said, I guess we would have been classed as itinerant workers, but jobs were scarce and we had to go on relief. The Joplin Globe article says her father took part in a relief march that took place at the state capitol and that they camped on the capitol lawn. I've seen several stories, each a little bit different, of Betty getting the notice of director Sam Wood. Usually, they involve Betty and Eileen singing and busking for tips in front of the Brown Derby and other nightclubs. One story has it that director Sam Wood discovered them outside the Brown Derby. The Joplin Globe has a more involved story where they went down to Paramount on a cold call and went to the switchboard operator's office and asked, Please, lady, can you tell us how we get into the movies? Sam Wood came by. They were singing Rancho Grande, and thus they were discovered. There are probably grains of truth in there somewhere, such as with singing and busking for tips. Betty, in an interview, said that she knew they had to get attention, and that was her way of doing it, setting themselves up outside places like the Brown Derby. But if they were heard singing Rancho Grande, they were already in the movies. Their first foray out was in Jane Autry's film Rancho Grande, which was released in March of 1940. The second picture was a short released in June 1940 called Cinderella's Feller, directed by Will William C. McGann at Warner Brothers. Betty has an uncredited part as a singer. Those are two that once you get into the PR when they were involved with Sam Wood and Paramount, those two pictures are never talked about. But instead, you've got that story of their singing Rancho Grande. Betty, Eileen, and Monty, all three appear in Rancho Grande, children of one of the characters. But rather than acting in the film, the movie instead opens on them sitting in a wagon singing the song. Monty holds a guitar facing his two sisters. Betty is only ever in profile, and while all receive about the same amount of camera time, Betty and Eileen are shot together, Eileen facing the camera while Monty sits opposite them playing guitar while obviously not really playing the guitar. But he's given solo close-ups as he sings, whereas Betty and Eileen are always shot together. The skin of all three has been darkened by makeup. They are supposed to appear to be Hispanic. They're not Hispanic, I know their genealogy. They were mostly Dutch. Their ancestors arrived in New York, then at that time, New Amsterdam, and they kept marrying and marrying Dutch and more Dutch for generations, even when the families eventually moved to Kentucky. Why they went to Kentucky, I don't know. It became part of that road that eventually delivered the family to the Ozarks. Betty, Eileen, and Monty do a really lovely job of singing that opening tune, actually dubbing. It's obvious too, that they have dubbed themselves. Their singing voices sweetly matching their speaking voices. 
It was unexpected to me how the camera is entirely theirs at the film's opening. Then Gene Autry comes walking up and sings a little with them, and then each of the kids has a brief speaking line, and they point him literally in the direction of the story, and he wanders off. After Rancho Grande and after Cinderella's Feller, Sam Wood's Rangers of Fortune was released in September of 1940 for Paramount. She stars in it. Betty really does star in it, opposite Fred McMurray. And despite my viewing a dismal print of the film, it's evident that she's quite good. I was astonished at this. The story concerns a girl who's taking care of her grandfather, a newspaper man who's been shoved out of town by a bad land baron. McMurray and his pals return to the town with her in order to help them. The grandfather dies. Betty's parents are dead. She's now orphaned, but she's determined to carry on. She'll keep that newspaper going on, too. McMurray falls in love with Patricia Morrison, the leading lady. Betty, who has secretly fallen in love with McMurray, gives a little monologue in which she acknowledges this and bravely steps out of the way. It's actually a sweet, warm moment, though there's, of course, some comedy there because she's 13, just a little girl. Betty ends up being killed in the film, and it's a real shocker. This is a different kind of Western. It's comedy and it's drama. It's not a confused film that way. It's not like it doesn't know whether it wants to be a comedy or a drama. Both are mixed pretty well together. If I didn't know Betty was in it and I started watching it, I would have stopped watching after the first five minutes. I was not engaged, actually, until Betty came on the screen. And I don't think it was because I'm a relative of hers. And I don't think it was because there was just that personal interest. I think that's because that's when the story kicks in. The story is all around Betty. As for the comedy about her stepping aside as a possible love interest of McMurray. I've done a lot of genealogy. It's bizarre, but it's in the Brewer family that something goes wrong. And with Betty's great-grandparents, we have a generation of siblings marrying quite young. And this is down my family line as well. This is highly unusual. In the family of Betty's great-grandparents, the siblings kind of start pouring out of the home. First, a sibling of her great-grandfather's marries at 13 to a man who's 22. Another brother of the great-grandfather at 18 then marries a 15-year-old. Then her great-grandfather at 18 marries a 14-year-old. Then another sibling of her great-grandfather's at 13 marries a man who's 10 years older than herself. She has her first child at 13, another at the age of 16, and she's dead at the age of 17. This is just to point out that several generations beforehand, in the 1800s, in Betty's family, in my family, she would have been a candidate for marriage at 13. And when her parents married in about 1920, Betty's father was 20 and her mother was 15. Betty was 15 when she filled Rangers of Fortune. So when she's doing this comedy bit where obviously she's too young for Fred McMurray, her mother 20 years earlier, in 1920, was not too young to marry at 15. The New York Times review reads, and I think I will go ahead and, should I read the whole thing here? I think that I shall. Nonchalance is a roguish attitude which actors quite frequently affect, but seldom does a director permit himself such an indulgence. Yet no better word will describe the serenely so-what state of mind in which director Sam Wood was apparently wandering when he put his hand to the making of Rangers of Fortune, which arrived at the Paramount yesterday. Nothing in it makes much sense. The story is as jumpy as a hop toad. Most of the conventions of Western fiction, which this one is, are observed to a point, then casually, almost carelessly, waved aside. The filming might have been done in a cave, so foul and murky is the lighting. Yet 
because of its very random nature, because of its glib inanities and a couple of extra special performances by Albert Decker and a new kid by the name of Betty Brewer, it somehow turns out to be a most pleasantly sloppy picture. Fearfully, we suspect this is the beginning of another series, for the fable is that of three devil-may-care adventurers in the Old Southwest, a renegade U.S. Army officer, a dark and handsome caballero, and a more than somewhat slap-happy ex-pug, who do a deed of kindness toward a little girl and her newspaper publishing grandpappy. In short, they rout out the varmint who has been pushing the old man around and generally clean up the town. But, just to show you how much Mr. Wood cared for romantic weaving. The old fellow and the little girl get killed in the course of events, and the heroic leader of the trio, Fred McMurray, doesn't wed the beautiful storekeeper, Patricia Morrison. Such a snatching away of sops you never saw. But that's all in the spirit of the picture's vagrant fun. So too is the vigorous, sharp-edged playing of Little Miss Brewer. As homely as a mud fence and as meddlesome as a wasp, this youngster flings about a robust and exciting personality. Watch her, folks. She's on her way. And Mr. Decker's performance as the ponderous pug with a bird's brain and a voice like Jimmy Durante's is rich and highly comic. Check Mr. McMurray, Miss Morrison, Joseph Schildkraut and Gilbert Rowland for competent collaboration. And there it is. Once again, it's really a shocker. It's astonishing that Betty gets killed right there. She gets shot right through. I don't think you can ask for a better review when you're 15 or 13 years of age. They produced a booklet of Betty Brewer paper dolls and a Betty Brewer coloring book in which she visited an army camp and watched the soldiers drill. From the back of a 1941 PR photo, we have Dreamer Makes Good. Betty Brewer, 13-year-old Paramount actress, dreamed that she was a movie star. And in her dream, she saw just what she had to do to make the dream a reality. The daughter of a carpenter who was out of work, Betty frantically tried to help out the large family of brothers and sisters. She took nine-year-old Monty and 12-year-old Eileen to the famed Brown Derby restaurant entrance, and there they sang for the ever-present notables. One of these important people turned out to be director Sam Wood, who was looking for a little girl to play opposite Fred McMurray in Rangers of Fortune. Betty, he decided, was just the girl for the part. She has made good as a result of this role, and now is in The Roundup with Richard Dix and Preston Foster. Betty was born in Joplin, Missouri on January 17, 1927. When they discovered they could sing, the Brewer children did radio skits in San Francisco. When the family moved to Hollywood, Monty became a member of the group. Betty is the business head of the family, and always is thinking of their welfare. She attended Eagle Pitcher Grammar School, Joplin, St. Joseph's Academy, Sacramento, the Hollywood Professional School, and now is in Paramount School, Hollywood. End quote. The Roundup from 1941 finds Betty again in another old western, again with Patricia Morrison, but without the prestigious director Sam Wood. A review I find says of Betty, quote, 13-year-old starlet Betty Brewer strikes a repeat note in this film after her realistic performance in Rangers of Fortune. We're all thankful that the blaze of Hollywood glory hasn't changed this little real-life refugee from Missouri's Dust Bowl. In the Roundup, Betty remains her own freckled-faced self, looking everyone's straight in the eye and delivering her lines as if she were talking in your own front parlor, end quote. So Betty, part of the PR persona that they were selling was this girl from Hard Circumstances, the Missouri Dust Bowl. She was making good for her family. She was taking care of them all. And she was authentic. And I think that PR about their impoverished history is supposed to set up a basis for this 
authenticity. She's not fake. Brother Monty appeared in Mr. Dynamite in 1941 and then was in an uncredited role in Bachelor Daddy. I've not seen either one of those films. They're not online. Eileen Brewer appeared in Riders of the Badlands in 1941. Again, not online. I haven't seen it. And before that, also in 1941, she was in Sam Wood's The Devil and Miss Jones. Now, The Devil and Miss Jones is a well-known film, and Eileen's role is sterling in that. She's really good. The story is, in brief, the wealthy John P. Merrick goes undercover at one of his own department stores in order to identify those who are going to start a union. This is something he doesn't want. Given placement in the shoe department, he's not doing very well and he has to prove he can sell. So he tells his butler to bring in a little girl so he can make a mock sale. Eileen is that so-called little girl who is brought into the shoe department of the store. She's a little too old for this role, being 14, 12 in studio years, and she looks just enough too old for it to be funny. She's sullen. She doesn't want to be there. When Merrick becomes dedicated to selling her boxes of a high-top style of shoes, generations long out of date, because that will show just how good a salesman he is, she frankly objects that she doesn't like them. She's very bold about it, and she kicks him. This could go very wrong. Instead, it goes really well. Eventually, there's an intervention to stop all the kicking to get Merrick out of the way. He's no good at selling to this little girl. She's given a lollipop, and Merrick is sent on his way while another person takes over. As Merrick is sent away, Eileen shifts ever so slightly in her seat, and it's a real nice little touch. It's a kind of victory adjustment that's so subtle it almost goes unnoticed. I don't think it's just family that makes me feel like she's really great in the role. Watch it. That was it for Eileen. She was in Riders of the Badlands and The Devil and Miss Jones and no more films. In 1942, Monty died, so there were no more films for him. There are several different stories about how he died. I have been told by a couple of people that he got food poisoning while they were on the road singing. Somebody else has written that they were told instead it was appendicitis that was mistreated. So that was a catastrophic thing that happens in the family in 1942. In 1942, Betty was in Wild Bill Hickok Rides. The movie takes place in 1870s Montana, and Hickok is righting wrongs against settlers done by a bad sheriff in cahoots with an evil land developer. I haven't seen it, so I can't say anything about that film. Also in 1942, she appeared in Juke Girl, which I have seen. Finally, it gets Betty a break from the Western. It's a film about migrant workers and stars Ronald Reagan and Ann Sheridan. The film opens with Betty, or Skeeter. She's called Skeeter here. She was called Squib in Rangers of Fortune. So her nicknames, I guess, for some reason, they begin with S. First Squib and now Skeeter. The film opens with her sitting on a fence and striking up a conversation with Reagan as he wanders by with a friend. She is so verbose and friendly. I almost feel uncomfortable wondering at her acting, what's going on with it. I'm wondering about, is it her? Is it all the lines that she's been fed? to give them? What is going on here? I don't know. It's kind of off-putting. Then she offers to walk with them up to the gas station that she's been sitting in front of. Uh, She's got a gas can. She's going to get gas for her family, which is somewhere down the road, their car having run out. She does the overly friendly patter at the gas pumps, and she gets her gas, and she starts to walk off, and she's called back. So all this friendly patter is an act to distract. 
she was hoping to walk off with the gas but the owner stops her and demands his money 12 cents she doesn't have the 12 cents for it reagan ends up paying for the gas for her when it's remarked to her that she would have been in trouble if he hadn't come around she says his face is exactly what she had been waiting for which sets up her character and explains what was going on from the beginning skeeter sizes up people and talks her way into getting things such as at one point in the film, she also does the same in order to get a free meal for her family, who we never meet. Much of the role is a reprise of her character in Rangers of Fortune, as if someone said, let's write a part for Betty Brewer and make it almost just like that 1940 role, only it's been updated. She's no longer in the long dress. She's instead in boyish jeans. She's once again kind of pulling certain things together in that she leads the leading man to the leading lady. And then, of course, she must mournfully but stoically give him up to the leading lady. What was sweet in 1940 and had a ring of honesty is now just mimicry. Little Betty Brewer is the lively, small little girl in pigtails and jeans who falls for Reagan, but Reagan falls for the sexy dish and Betty makes her show of bowing out, letting go, because it's the right thing to do. At least she isn't killed in this film. It's a disappointing role. It's a disappointing role and I imagine she would have been glad for the work. We're seeing her get typecast. She then appeared in the 1942 Pride of the Yankees in an uncredited role so it had to be very small and in the film Mrs. Wiggs of the Cabbage Patch also in 1942 another film I haven't seen but it was a larger role in 1943 she was in Columbia's pictures My Kingdom for a Cook I've not seen this but an online review remarks that she's amusing but it's a good performance that in this film pretty much goes for naught so the film must not have been very good her last picture is one in which she only had one line it was 1944's Cover Girl which is a fantastic film it stars Rita Hayworth and Gene Kelly and it's absolutely gorgeous who cares about the plot you're just watching it for just the technicolor the staging the sets the costumes it's glorious the choreography betty's is an unfortunate role rita hayworth becomes famous in the film she's a dancer she becomes a cover girl it draws a lot of autograph seekers and Betty is stuck in with a number of these young adolescent autograph seekers who are disappointed that they can't get to her. They don't get to the star. Another person, also an actor, offers their photograph, but they don't want that. And Betty scornfully exclaims, you ain't nobody. And she turns and runs out the door in a chaotic mess with the other young adolescents. And it's really, really kind of strange to watch this because she's not a youth. She's now 20 years of age. She's still very small for her age, but her face is that of a 20-year-old. To make up for it, they have her dressed in saddle shoes, a schoolgirl plaid dress and sweater. In PR pictures, her hair has always been long and silken wavy, although she's worn it in pigtails in the, in the movies that I've seen her in. Here, her long wavy hair has been cut short in an orphan Annie look, and there's a big, white bow planted on the top of it. It's completely bizarre. That white bow, I suppose they went, well, she still doesn't look young enough. Let's plant a white bow on there. And it's just an insult. I wonder how it felt for her, for this girl who in 1940 was such a go-getter and I'll talk more about this later, who the New York Times said was on her way, and and I've read other pieces that said she was on her way, where now in 1944, she's stuck in with a bunch of autograph seekers who are much younger than she is, and she says to the person, you ain't nobody, 
and turns down their autograph. How did that feel? And that's her last role. That's the last we know of anything about her in entertainment. And she was 20. IMDb gives her as briefly returning in 1950-51, appearing as a singer on television on Ed Sullivan, two episodes of The Floor Show, and 11 episodes of Donna Amici's Musical Playhouse. But that really didn't seem right to me. And I found where a relative of the jazz singer Betty Brewer has written into IMDb to say that it was instead her Betty Brewer who appeared on television on Don Amici's musical Playhouse and on Ed Sullivan. It wasn't our Betty Brewer. So what happened? Not only did Betty Brewer disappear from film, she disappeared as a singing talent. That's what's confusing to me. Apparently Betty married in October of 1945. She had a child in 1946. In 1946, her father died in a car accident. Find a Grave also has listed that she had a child who was born and died on 15th of November of 1947. There's a photograph of the headstone. We know that that is certain. Find a Grave also has a memorial for the older child that was born in 1946 and that memorial says that child also died on 15th of November of 1947. I think that's in error. There's not a headstone. I don't believe that that child died. Uh, I think that there's possibly some confusion there. At least I hope there is. I have found a high school yearbook picture of a boy who would have been the age of her son and he looks very much like Betty's deceased brother, Monty. So I hope that's an error that the child who was born in 1946 died in 1947. I really hope that's wrong. I can't imagine having to live with two children dying on the same day like that. A 1944 article on the marriage of Betty Brewer, the jazz singer, confuses her with My Betty, placing the image of a younger Betty Brewer alongside the jazz singer. It must have driven those two to distraction, being confused with one another, even then. And it continues. As I've said, they're still confused on IMDb, and they are still confused in Betty's bio on Wikipedia. Sites that sell photographs confuse the two women, so that you'll have, even though they look very different, you'll have have all their photos set side by side being sold in a parcel. I'm going to read one last thing on Betty. It's from 1940 and it's an article that highlights just how talented she was and smart, but it is really very oddly mean-spirited. The title of it is Oki Girl. 13 is film's newest sensation. I don't know why they said Oki because she, oh, I actually, that's right. She, uh, I think they lived in Oklahoma for a little while too. This is by Talbot Lake. Briefly, the story of Betty Brewer, the 13-year-old star of the movie Ranger of Fortune, it's Rangers of Fortune, is this. About four months ago, she, her ailing mother, her jobless carpenter father, sister Eileen, 12, and brother Sonny, 6, landed in Hollywood from the Dust Bowl of Joplin, Missouri with $12. In a short time, they were down to 50 cents and out begging on the streets. Betty, who is the brains and manager of the family, sang with her brother and sister for pennies. Sam Wood, 
movie director, went by, and now Betty is a star, a wow on the radio, and all the rest of it. This gangly little girl with what she calls a ski-jump nose, dull brown hair, an adolescent complexion, and small, expressive brown eyes is not a pretty child, but she is a born actress. She makes nice to newspaper men as well as Tallulah Bankhead does, and they are completely new to Betty. Ask her to sing, and she rips off a swing number with all the aplume of a headline torch singer. She dominates the room, has all the answers to everything, helps out the press agents with suggestions, tells you to make yourself at home. When the picture men come, Betty grins on request, repeats lines, looks fierce, does any darned thing they ask of her. She gabbles movie lingo glibly, and just like any other actress, runs down her nearest rival, who happens to be Shirley Temple. She reads a script once, and an hour later knows all the lines by heart. She relates the plot with all the zest of an adult actress selling her new play or picture to you. She talks about options, investments, new scripts, and the future just as expertly as a veteran, and she's only four months in the business. Betty wants to be a commercial artist if she doesn't go on in pictures. She doesn't want to rent a house. She wants to own one for her folks. She wants to send her mother to the hospital. She wants to set up house for her father, sister, and brother. She doesn't want maids to, quote, take off her shoes and lazy around all day, end quote. She wants to be simple, sweet, and unsophisticated. Well, here's where we go out on a limb and predict for Betty she'll always be an actress. She'll own dozens of houses. She'll support the folks. She'll get the maids and not mind them. And she won't be sweet, simple, and unsophisticated, mainly because she's too innately an actress to be that way even now. We know that because Betty did one thing that made us see the future. They wanted to take pictures of her crying. Okay, pal, she said, just a minute, and went out of the room. When she came back, she gave us tears, barrels of tears, for half a dozen pictures, and then turned them off when the cameras stopped clicking. Betty did it by thinking sad things about Mama and Pappy. It may have been wonderful, but it gave us a case of the squirms. Actually, it says, but it gave us a case of squirms. So there, that's what Talbot Lake had to say about Betty. And it's really odd, no matter whether she's 13 or 15, I think it's a really odd article to do about a child. She did come from difficult circumstances. And as you can tell from this article, she was very focused and she was an actress. She knew what she was doing. She had her goals. I don't know why Talbot Lake went after her like that, just because she cried on cue. You'll also notice one of the other big things about the PR with Betty was, remember, New York Times said she was ugly as a mud fence. Like this person talked about how she had dull brown hair and an adolescent complexion. She was sold basically as being unattractive. And the thing is, is that she was pretty. She wasn't a cute child. She wasn't going to turn into the sexy cover girl or the sexy leading lady. But she wasn't unattractive at all. Neither was her sister Eileen. For some reason, it seems like the PR that they cooked up for her was not just the Missouri Dust Bowl, the Oki, the person who was going to be authentic. That was one thing about the article also. I think the article was going, oh, well, she's not authentic. She's already an actress. And they were irritated with that. But really, to go after a 15-year-old because they're already an actress, it's a strange article. I don't know what else to say about this. Because it's a weird thing that she just drops off out of entertainment completely when she was so 
focused. She had her dreams, and I'm surprised she didn't go back to singing, but she didn't. Or she did, and we just don't know about it. We can hope she had other outlets. I don't know what her story is. I don't know how it ended up for her. I don't know how to end this. I wish I did. Betty died in 2006. We know that from her SSDI information, and that's all that I know about her. I don't know how the rest of her life went. Anyway, it's because of Betty that I've ended up watching Rangers of Fortune. I would not have watched it otherwise. And it's because of Betty that I have ended up watching that movie with Ronald Reagan and Ann Sheridan. I wouldn't have watched that otherwise. I'm glad I did. She's one of those child stars who hoped to make it and then ended up, it all went away. She had one really good film and then it just dropped off. And by 1944, she was done with. She ended up not sticking with her singing career either. She was a good actress, she was a good singer, and I wish I knew more about their childhood careers. I wish I knew more about what was involved, and I wish I knew what happened. Did Eileen decide she didn't want to stay in films anymore? Or did she not have the opportunity? Did Betty find it where it was going to be impossible for her to transition from a child actress into an adult actress? Did she give up singing because she wanted to? Did she not try to stick out with acting, going for other kinds of parts? minor parts that might have built up eventually into some kind of character actress when she was older. I don't know. They left it behind or it left them behind. I don't know which. I hope this helps to straighten out the careers of the two Bettys and helps separate them. And that's about all I have to say. Until later.